I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Homelessness, the reason it's complex is it's often an intersection of a bunch of different issues, right? Yeah. It's a big issue in inner cities, urban communities, uh, middle America. Now, I have been biting my tongue this whole time ever since you said HUD. I can't help but think about the $30,000 dining room table that Mr. Carson purchased. <laughs> like, oh my. The building industry has long been reluctant to change. When things are going well, developers and builders have had no incentive to rock the boat. But now, post-recession, A shift in society and culture has ushered in a tidal wave of change in the industry, and there's no going back. Welcome to Spaces, where we explore and analyze how the building industry is evolving, from design and construction to management and economics. Join hosts Jason, Ali, and Demetrius as they discuss the evolution of your spaces. Hello, my name is Demetrius. Ali has returned. Yay! But Jason is not here. But the show must go on, and that show is Spaces. Thank you again, everybody, for uh, coming back. Brought a guest in today. He is, he actually has a, a, a podcast himself, so I'll let him uh, kind of plug some of those, or multiple podcasts. But he's also a professor, a cyclist, a vegan, he likes music, and collects records, tattoos, coffee, the San Francisco Giants, LAFC, is that the soccer team? That is, yeah. And ending homelessness and hunger in his community, David Gillanders Jr., Executive Director of Pathways of Hope. Thank you for joining us, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. 
so Pathways of Hope, it's an organization that, that aids the hungry and homeless in, in Orange County. And you guys kind of approach that by tackling housing, outreach, uh, prevention, and engagement. Do you want to kind of expand on, on that? Yeah, sure. So we've been around uh, for 42 years, almost 43 years. So we actually started in 1975. Um, we're coming up on our 43rd anniversary here pretty soon, our birthday, if you will. Um, so we, yeah, we take on homelessness and hungry, specific, uh, the homelessness and the hungry, um, help serving them in Northern Orange County, most specifically. And we do that in a variety of ways. The, the best way to think about what we try to strive to be is problem solvers for people, right? So we try to actually end the experience of homelessness or the experience of hunger for our community members and our neighbors, uh, in the local area. So, uh, we have different kinds of housing programs that take on homelessness and uh, and prevention of homelessness, you know, rental assistance, and then obviously all the the homelessness uh, services models that you know about, so rapid rehousing, sheltering for families and things like that. We have all kinds of different assets and properties that we utilize for all that work. So sheltering, permanent placements and housing, things like that. On the hunger side, we have a food distribution center. We do about 100,000 food services a year. Keeps, okay. oh, I'm sorry, 10,000. <laughs> Yeah. keeps us pretty busy. I was doing the math in my head and I added a zero. So yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no worries. Yeah. So we, we brought David in today. Um, we're going to cover homelessness and, and kind of talk about spaces that aid this, this fight against homelessness. So David's been kind of on the front lines of, of tackling this issue. It's a major issue that, that needs to be addressed and, and the building industry can play a big part in that. But before we jump completely into that, I wanted to give you a chance, David, to kind of plug a few things, your your <laughs> social media, your uh, sure. your other podcasts. and. Well, I think if you just go to Twitter and follow Pathways David, all one word, Pathways David, you can find everything you need to know about Okay. the work I do for sure and what I'm into. But uh, I, I definitely try to make that more work focused, that, that handle and that social media just... Um, strictly because there's a lot to do to uh, to stoke the fire of the uh, the story of homelessness, so to speak. So I try to use that as a platform to do that. Um, I wanted to take one quick moment to uh, point out we we're gonna skip the uh, market updates this week uh, because homelessness is such a complex and multifaceted issue. We want to make sure we have enough time to hit all the points that that we have. And um, so, Ali, we're gonna. We're going to skip you on that one this week. So that's fine. And if you guys are interested, I did a deep dive on a podcast called Cashflow Connections. So Hunter Thompson, he's the host. And so he provides a lot of investment advice and just kind of had me on to talk about the state of the economy. Uh, is a recession looming? What are top indicators that we should be watching? So if you're interested in that, again, it's Cashflow Connections. What's Hunter's middle name? It's not, it doesn't start with an S, does it? Because that's a great name, Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> I did not ask him that. Uh, so when you look at the actual definition of homelessness, uh, one of the ones that I've found that kind of encapsulates uh, a, a broad understanding of it is it's like a homeless person is an individual, regardless of whether the individual is a member of a family without permanent housing who may live on the streets, uh, stay in a shelter, mission, single room occupancy facilities, abandoned building or vehicle, or in any unstable or non-permanent situation. One of the things about, as I was growing up, you know, there's all these stigmas and, and things about homelessness that you're either told or make up in your head, but there are actually some, you know, some causes both on a broad scope as well as everyday things that can happen to anybody. 
and then some of those causes that that can lead to homelessness are uh, poverty lack of affordable housing effects from war so ptsd physical disability um, natural disasters lack of affordable health care mental illness addiction and then those normal life occurrences that that i was talking about um, loss of loved ones job loss domestic violence divorce and family disputes what are some of the things that you see misconceptions the picture in the face of the people who are homeless or what that definition of homelessness is even has, has changed so much so dramatically in recent years, uh, especially in our community here in particular. Yeah, the um, one of the things that I think is is probably the biggest misconception about the homeless is, you know, they're they're all substance abusers or they're all, you know, um, they're all criminals, former criminals or, you know, people trying to, you know, get away from society or the other end of kind of the the homeless spectrum they're all you know crazy and they all push shopping carts and they all you know will attack you on site for your wallet or something like that or yell at you or scream at you or something and and the truth is is that the 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 reality for most folks is somewhere in the middle yeah so one of the one of the realities we know about homelessness is that you know if you had issues before you lost your housing and you started experiencing homelessness and look most people walking around right today have mental health issues that they could deal with in a more yeah in a more you know um assertive way right yeah <laughs> um most people who are substance abusers are housed right most people you know maybe not proportionally that quite the same but let's face it there's a whole lot of people who are um have the disease of alcoholism or are addicted to substances of some kind that have housing right so this is not these are not attributes or um afflictions for human beings that are that are sequestered entirely to the homeless population right so that's one of the first things that has to be acknowledged is that they share characteristics and they share challenges and struggles that a lot of people have homelessness the reason it's complex is it's often an intersection of a bunch of different issues right yeah and and one of those big sort of overarching issues that it that um triggers a lot of these things are going to be issues of economics right Mm -hmm. so loss of a job housing issue, family strife, these kinds of things can start an episode of things, an avalanche of things that can eventually lead to somebody, maybe the, you know, the quote unquote crazy person, which is what we were all told when we were kids. Um, I hate that use that language, but yeah. it is what it is, you know, all the way through to the people who did some time in jail, you know, and then are, are, you know, now just trying to reintegrate into society and a society that doesn't want them to really. And yeah. that's, uh, I know with Homemade, an organization, um, I don't know if it's founded by Peter Simons, but he gives presentations at these events across the country and he talks, I don't know if the number is 80%, but it's something that 80% of people are homeless because of situation, because of you lose your job and then, like you said, the kind of the avalanche of things that go downhill. When you look at just the consumer pocketbook, a $500 surprise expense would put them in debt. So if you instead had something that's greater than that, then you start to kind of start to fall behind on your bills. And then there just kind of becomes this, this big issue where maybe you get evicted and then you're on the streets and you were as normal as, you know, you weren't a crazy person. You were right. just someone that, that just, you know, came on bad luck. Yeah. When we look at the, the economic part of it, it's a big issue in inner cities, urban communities, uh, middle America those areas are are very disadvantaged just by the structure of our country and certain things that are prioritized uh, you have poor school or uh, poor schooling you have the issues of high unemployment which comes from lack of job opportunities poor education uh, health conditions you know in these type of areas 
there's no restrictions for liquor stores. There's a liquor store on every block. They're usually in areas that are fairly close to industrial plants and places like that, polluted areas that can basically have long-term health effects. And all of these things kind of add up uh, to stack the odds against people in these type of areas, ultimately make them very susceptible to um, you know that, that threshold of uh, being below the poverty line and one wrong turn can end up um, pushing you out of a, a home. Yeah, and I mean, that's the trick, right? So it's, it's you know, it's funny you're talking about that. And I'm thinking about this book I read um, last fall called Detroit by Charlie Duff. And it was talking about, you know, how one of America's great cities really imploded, right? Through all these kinds of issues and the kind of poverty that was brought along as a result and the issues with housing that are very different there. But, you know, you're talking about middle America and the challenges. And I think a lot about you know, loss in that part of the country in particular, and I'm not an expert on homeless issues in particular there, but um, uh, I think a lot about the loss of industrialization, the loss of jobs. Um, and then what that connects back to me a lot of the times is two issues with homelessness. Number one is youth homelessness, which is really on the rise in this country. And a lot of that, I'm 41 years old. Mm-hmm. When I was 18, I was able to rent or split an apartment with a buddy of mine, right? We were just like punk rock kids going to shows, delivering pizza for our jobs, going to community college. We were able to do something like that for $400 each per month. And um, the kind of the, the, the weird sort of um, reality of that was is that it was easy, right? And if you ask a 19-year-old right now, you know, almost in any part of this country to move out, have a job that can pay a sustainable wage, that can get them an apartment or whatever, and still, you know have some sort of hope for the future that's a big ask right now for a lot of kids in this country yeah you know and then the other intersection is with people of color right so we know that the overwhelming number of youth homelessness in particular is people of color and i i was at a conference for homelessness the last couple weeks or i'm sorry last couple days sorry it's just all a blur right now um and one of the most insane statistics i heard was that one percent and i'd heard this one before that one percent of san francisco's population is actually homeless right so inside the seven by seven one out of every 100 people in orange county it's 0.15 percent so just so 10 times the rate of homelessness let's put it that way amongst their population yeah 80 percent of those people are people of color wow right so that when you start to think of all the different factors and kind of confluence of things you know leads you to back to the idea that you know homelessness is a very layered complicated issue that isn't just the simple uh, they did a lot of drugs and got kicked out of their house and can't get it together and go get a job it's it's much much deeper than that structural in a lot of ways yeah and i'm glad you brought up the midwest so our listeners know i'm from cleveland and when you look at how they've tried to diversify cleveland rocks Allie. cleveland rocks (laughs) (laughs) why don't you have a shirt saying that i know i wore a virginia shirt my bad uh so no when you look at the diversification of the industries it used to be manufacturing you used to have a lot of the the um mining and a lot of those people don't have other skills they grew up their parents did it they've then done it and then when you start to lose those jobs i'm not going to go on a rant about tariffs (laughs) but you know tariffs may help them in the short run it's not going to help them in the long run and it'll be really interesting to see does that make things worse uh we were in chicago my husband and i a couple summers ago no winters ago and it was minus 10 degrees and the amount of people (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't know what winter it rained here this morning oh that's true that's true it was so miserable when we were freezing in layers and layers and layers and going out and having drinks and and eating and then seeing all of these people that are sitting on the streets in minus 10 degree in the snow and the ice and 
it's, you know, when we, I look at the people in California, I'm like, in a weird way, you're like, oh, you're lucky. Because yeah. for, you know, in on a homeless spectrum, yeah. it could be a lot worse. You know what's crazy is a lot of people, and I hate using that word, but it's just there's so many. It's it's interesting when you when you work in homeless services and you talk to people who don't, yeah. and you guys are really like trying hard to understand it and have a good basic grasp of a lot of it. Mm-hmm. There's so many things like I could tell you that will just blow your mind, right? So everyone, and, and, and not in like in a good way, but yeah. like one of the things that everyone goes... Oh, well, this is California, so so many homeless must migrate here, right? Yeah. This, this is this must this is like the land of milk and honey. For if you're homeless, you can yeah. sleep outside year round. So the United Way and um, Orange County United Way, who has this huge uh, awareness campaign that's starting, that our agency is a part of, and we're really proud of it. It's called United End Homelessness, um, hashtag End Homelessness OC, and there's a whole bunch of corporate and faith leaders finally getting on this bandwagon of really ending homelessness in Orange County. But they did a study. One one of the catalysts for that was a study they did with uh, UCI University of California Irvine, and in that study they found like over eighty percent of the people who were chronically homeless in Orange County were from Orange County, hmm. which is remarkable when you think about it. Yeah. With the draw that this place has for people, yeah. I mean, people aren't really moving here now because no one can afford it. Yeah, but that's another issue <laughs> entirely. Except yeah. except the affordability is part of the reason we have so many of our native people now you know, not able to afford a place. So to be able to pick your brain then, when I will walk by someone homeless, I'll give them money or give them food. Is it weird to give them food? I mean, my personal perspective? Sure. I mean, I always give food. Yeah. Like, that's easy. If I got, I mean, I live in the orange circle, right? So you go to eat, you walk out, you got like a doggy bag. Like my kids are basically trained at this point. Like the first homeless person you see, you give them your dinner. Your dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Is that's that rude just, or is that, no, it's is awesome. that welcome? No, okay. it's usually awesome. I mean, you ask, right? So just like anyone else, if you, you know, you don't, this is part of like destigmatizing the fact that these are people that are homeless. These are people just in your neighborhood, in yeah. your community. They're just not sleeping inside tonight. Yeah. And so for me, I wouldn't just walk up to Demetrius or Allie and just start saying, here's my dinner. I would say, hey, can I help you with something? Would you like to have this? You know, or, hey, how are you doing? I just wanted to know if I can help you. Yeah, you know, that's you. You engage in an appropriate way. I mean, the answer. I was just in Berkeley last month, and you know, the the homeless problem in the East Bay is, you know, it's always been something else. I mean, we've talked about San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley are just, you know, just as bad. You know, we're eating. You know, as you mentioned, I'm vegan, right? So yeah. <laughs> pick of the litter up there in awesome vegan restaurants. We're eating at all these places, always walking out with extra food and then just kind of giving it giving it to somebody, you know. It's just, you know, it's just kind of what we do. I'm always comfortable with that. I mean, I don't know. I, I know people have a lot of mixed feelings or talk a lot about enabling. People got to eat, man. Yeah. You know, people yeah. got to have a meal. I, I like that you pointed out, um, you know, one of the things is making sure you talk to someone first and ask, you know, how can you help them? Because not everybody wants food right at that moment. Um, I know one story. I I, I was um, out in downtown L.A. and uh, had some food and I just went up and gave it to uh, a homeless person that was that was right there. And he's like, I don't want that and threw it away. And I was completely like taken aback. Like, I'm trying to give you free food. Um, I got a good story for yeah. you. So last couple of days at this conference in LA, a friend of mine, his name is Mark Horvath. I hope he listens to this. I'll get him to listen to it. So he's he's a real popular uh, video uh, podcaster guy. He goes on Twitter by the name Hardly Normal. 
and he has this whole uh, multimedia thing called Invisible People where he interviews people experiencing homelessness and has conversations with them and then talks about it. He's done tours across the country. He has support from Haynes. So he goes around to folks and like gives them socks all the time. So yesterday or the day before when we were up in L.A. at this conference, he was walking around giving out socks to to the homeless. Walked up to a guy, gave him the socks. The guy demanded he take 50 cents for the socks. And so this is not something you'd expect, right? Yeah. But the guy had so much pride in the fact oh. that somebody was giving him something. He's like, all I got is 50 cents. I want you to have it. And Mark's like, no, I don't want your 50 cents. And the dude's like, no, you're taking my 50 cents. <laughs> oh, wow. So Mark took it and tweeted a picture of it. Yeah. And I was like, I'm just going to give this to the next homeless person. I said, yeah. you know, because it's not right for me to have it. Yeah. Right? But I mean, that's the thing is like you engage people where they're at. Yeah. And that's really important when you're doing any kind of services for the homeless, housing, anything. You ask them, what is it you need? How yeah. can I help you best in your situation? Wow. Because yeah. that's, I was in uh, Belmont Shores, so Long Beach area in California recently. And there was a gentleman that was just filthy. He was so clearly to me homeless and not just someone who's trying to, to get money. But he was almost, and I, I sound so wrong saying this, he was almost so filthy and so distressed that I was afraid to engage him. Yeah. So uh, the most I did was walk up and give him money and walked away and I didn't ask him any questions. But I'm assuming at that point, it's better than nothing. Well, I mean, that's up for him to decide, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I commend you on two things. Number one, disclosing that it made you uncomfortable because I think actually that discomfort and acknowledging it and talking about it's really important for people, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Because you're not trained as a kid. My kids are, but that's a different situation. <laughs> yeah. Most kids, most most people are not trained to just be comfortable in, in what is normally an uncomfortable situation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other part is you are thinking about it. Well, did that actually have like a tangible effect? Mm-hmm. And not because you're thinking, oh, well, I'll just, you know, why would I give this person money? They're going to go mm-hmm. spend it on drugs. But you're actually thinking, wait, will that help? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a different conversation. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to backtrack a little bit and kind of add on to that definition of of homelessness homelessness and you know provide some statistics to give people an idea um of where we're at uh, i was looking at home aid's website um home aid is a i think they're, they're a national organization yeah uh, we have a local chapter here in orange county as well they suggest that 3.5 million americans uh, experience homelessness each year um, and if you do some research on homelessness you find some numbers that are a little bit confusing 3.5 million Americans are homeless each year. Of these, more than 1 million children. There's something called the PIT count. It's a point, uh, was it point in? Point in time. Point in time uh, calculation. So recently there was a number that came out that showed 554,000 people are homeless. And that point in time count is uh, taken every January. Yeah, there's uh, yeah, you're you're mandated by HUD every couple of years in January on a single pre-prescribed night to yeah. count your sheltered and unsheltered homeless yeah. in your community. Okay, so um, so if you do some research on this, uh, you'll see mixed numbers. Like when I first saw the five hundred fifty-four thousand, I was like, really, that's it? Uh, but it's actually sort of a lot more that experience homelessness. Some people are what they consider temporary. Uh, temporarily homeless so that's kind of fluctuating they're they're out for um, or without a home for a few weeks at a time Um, but the more chronically homeless people don't have any shelter at all yeah and there's also definition differences right so the department of education has a definition of homelessness about children in particular 
that talks about children who are doubled and tripled up and living in housing that's not, you know, the best way I think to think about it is housing that's not theirs, right? So their mom and dad's name or their caretaker's name is not the name on the lease, but they're staying with someone or they're staying in a motel, but mm-hmm. it's not it's not something they're like have a more permanence or tether to. And I think that's the easiest way to explain it to the person who doesn't like work on it all the time, but there's different variables even within that, right? Yeah. So Orange County has 30,000 of those kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I know. And so that 30,000 is more than Arizona and Colorado put together. Whoa. That's how many of those kids Orange County has. Orange so, County's more than? Yeah. That's wow. And they're called McKinney-Vento designated kids. It's a Department of Education um, uh, definition. I used to work at Project Hope Alliance, which was uh, featured in that uh, HBO uh, documentary, The Motel Kids of Orange County. Okay. Um, and my friend Jennifer Friend is now the executive director over there. And that's like that's their wheelhouse. Like They work on motel kids. Like yeah. That's their definition of homelessness for them that they work on. Meanwhile, our agency at Pathways of Hope, we really focus on unsheltered kids because we get calls all the time for kids getting pulled out of the riverbed with their families or... They're living in La Palma Park, you know, oh or in God. a van or something. So, yeah, child homelessness is is a real and significant thing. But there's just different ways to slice up a very big pie of kids that are essentially either actually living outside or places not meant for human habitation, or are living in in situations that are just not uh, um, not congruent or conducive or whatever c word you want to call yeah. it. <laughs> Um, not helping um, with, uh, you know, the proper sort of, uh, you know, development of a child. So, yeah. yeah. Nationally, I was looking at uh, California and Florida kind of lead the nation in this category of homelessness as over 6% of the population in, in both of those locations uh, of people are homeless. And that, that ranges from, you know, single male, single female to uh, whole families that are homeless and then that second grouping of three to six percent of the population is Texas, Georgia, and New York. So this is, you know, a rampant issue that that plagues the entire nation that that needs to be addressed. But so based on my extensive research by listening to NPR, <laughs> I will. Uh, you're say, ahead of most people. Yeah, <laughs> I will say that they said homelessness is trending down, except in major cities. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's been a lot of really um, positive stuff that has happened in uh, some of the rural markets, what we call balance of state markets. So, you know, you might have a um, you might have a state like you know I don't know. Let's just I'm gonna pick a state. So don't if if my friends are listening who work in the continuums of care in these states, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but let's just say like Iowa, right? So Iowa's just got a couple semi-major, not really even considered major urban areas. You know, you got like Iowa City, Sioux Falls, or something, right? Sioux Falls and Iowa, yeah. yeah. But you know, um, but then you got the entire rest of the state, right? Yeah. So we've been able to make pretty good inroads in some of those areas. You know, the the rural homeless, small town, and part of the reason or smaller small ish town you know yeah and part of the reason for that is those towns to this point have um well number one it's it's a huge credit to the people that work there that do the services obviously they found a mirror they found a, a miracle solution or a way to bring homelessness down for them utah is another good example of a place that's done a really great job of bringing down homelessness um one of the the characteristics in a lot of those communities is uh, vacancy and rent, right? So mm-hmm. it's the amount of units that are available for use and the cost of rent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, um, for us here in Orange County, it's the single biggest factor to any homelessness, quite frankly, is the housing market. 
Um, and in those communities where it's been successful, they have not been inundated quite yet with people fleeing the coasts or moving out of the closest major metropolitan area into those places that they can maybe then afford. Um, so there's a lot of, again, a, a lot of what we're talking about are environmental factors, right? That yeah. really play into whether or not you can do an effective job um, solving this problem. Yeah. Now, I have been biting my tongue this whole time ever since you said HUD. I can't help but think about the $30,000 dining room table that Mr. Carson purchased. <laughs> like, oh my if he would God. take that money and put it somewhere else. Yeah. So it's funny that you say $30,000. I, I saw... A, a number from interagency. I appreciate you not putting me on the spot to answer. Yeah. That was a good transition. A, yeah. He was like, was I'm going to take her. Yeah. But as a HUD funded agency, I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. just uh, abstain from comment on that one. Yeah. I'll save you there, David. Thank you. Uh, so the 30,000 number, uh, a number by interagency council on homelessness, uh, they estimate that the cost to the government per homeless person is 30,000 to $50,000 per person. And that per co- year? Per... Uh, per year. And that cost comes from um, medical care, emergency care, um, the cost of shelters, incarceration, and rehab facilities. So that $30,000 table could have help gone to, to, to help one person. For so year. I'll, I'll push out on this comment a little bit and expand on it if you if you will give me the yeah, opportunity yeah, go for to. It. So I looked at that number, that the $31,000 table set. Yeah. And thought the first thing I did think to myself was, I our agency could actually house five families that are currently wow. homeless and their homelessness mm. and get them into a permanent place, you know, with with a program model called rapid rehousing, which is highly cost efficient, super effective. Um, if and so it's 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 a it's a temporary subsidized rent. One of the biggest hurdles families have getting over once they've been evicted from an apartment is um, their credit and saving the money for the deposit to get into a new place. So if you can help with that, you can actually end someone's homelessness um, for a pretty reasonable price. And then you give them all whatever other services they may need to, to stay housed. Um, if I had somebody who was chronically homeless or maybe had a higher what we call acuity, right? So vulnerability, uh, maybe had some mental health issues or some substance abuse issues, uh, some kind of disability has to be part of the chronic homelessness um, threshold you know to cross it you have to have a a disability of some kind yeah um so uh for those folks we could do about thirty thousand a year if i or a little bit more probably probably uh, probably closer to 50 in orange county to be honest with all the things you need um if i had singles that i could do rapid rehousing with so we know a lot of we know a lot of people out there in particular there's a lot of men out there who live in their truck yeah and do a handyman job um, really? yeah, there's a lot. I mean, we talk to a lot of them, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of, it's part of that hidden homeless population, you hmm. know, that people don't know and don't realize, you know, there's, so are those, do you think those numbers are tracked or is that, it's really hard to count those people really wow. hard. Youth homelessness is exceptionally hard to count because people stay hidden family homelessness. No one wants to be designated as homeless. Cause what's the first thing that happens when CPS finds out you're living in a van, they take your kids, they take your kids. Wow. Um, and then, um, there are, there is this glut of high functioning singles that are homeless. And when I say high functioning, they got jobs and they may not have substance abuse issues. Now, again, as I said, to start the show, you know, issues get exacerbated. The stress of being homeless or being the stress of homelessness is so overwhelming for a lot of people that if you suffered from a little bit of depression and anxiety before imagine what happens when you're trying to like survive yeah you know and you're pushed to the brink there exactly. mentally and so emotionally 
For people that are chronically homeless, one thing I heard is that there was a gentleman, it was just like a story that was covered, a gentleman that lived in LA, they transitioned him into housing and he's been there now 10 years or something, but he said his hardest thing was the transition and it was his friends were the friends on Skid Row. Like his mm-hmm. friends are on the street and he felt right. really lonely. Yeah. So do you see that? Yeah, absolutely. So in this recent um, this recent effort to, to remove everyone from the riverbed, um, one of our agency helped source some hotel rooms for that effort. And one of the first questions was, how can we cluster people together who are familiar with each other? Because who you know, are familiar? Sure. Because okay. if you think about what went on in the riverbed, especially, so the riverbed has always had homeless people living in it, right? So mm-hmm. I used to, I, in 2000, I, uh, maybe 11, I, I know I worked on it in 11, but definitely in 2013 and 2015. So as a cyclist, they used to give me the job of riding my bike all along the riverbed and counting the number of people mm-hmm. um, and doing interviews. So I would go out with a friend, we'd go out four in the morning you know, load our bikes up with lights and take the stuff, you know, and then kind of watch each other, make sure everything was cool. And we yeah. would talk to people and do surveys and then count as many people as we could. Um, that became impossible over the last two and a half years because of the explosion in population wow. down there. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things we learned and one of the things you, you find out quickly about encampments and one of the things I, even myself, you know, having done this work for about a decade, didn't really realize because we hadn't seen it like this is just how entrenched in community these people become, yeah. right? And when I say these people, I mean, it's because they're our neighbors in our community. That's mm-hmm. just their community, you yeah. know? And that's that's what becomes their community. Just like my neighbor's, my neighbor's Mary. She's awesome. We, yeah. She watches my house when I leave and you yeah. know, she picks up our mail. <laughs> like there's people that do that for each other in encampments. So when you start to like, you know, kind of remove that situation, it's like the support system someone once had. And remember, these are human beings, right? Like we all need a support system. Yeah, That's then taken away from them too. It becomes harder for them to start working on all the things that they need to do to stay housed at that point, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those things you mentioned of of the community, um, and then you mentioned one of the solutions for homelessness. I wanted to kind of transition so we have enough time to highlight some of those solutions that are that are out there and uh things that are coming up and i should have um, warned you it's really hard for me to do a 45 minute podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah because yours are, are more long format you said right? yeah and i just talk a lot so <laughs> uh no worries that's what i'm here for try and usher us along so when we talk about solutions there's a lot of different ways you can attack this there are a lot of temporary um sort of solutions short-term housing and then just the, the normal effects of uh, rehab centers and other other opportunities like that. But uh, from what I understand, the, the more effective solution that's kind of picking up steam now is the uh, housing first kind of movement. Do you want to talk a little bit about housing first? Yeah. So at the, at the outset, I'll just say that housing first is a philosophy, Okay. right? Yeah. So housing first is not a model. Okay. You apply housing first, the philosophy, to your approach to ending homelessness, right? Mm-hmm. So what housing first says is the most important thing that you can do for someone who's not currently housed is house them. Yeah. The issues of substance abuse, the issues of mental health, the issues of all those other things tend to decline quicker and be more manageable for someone who has a roof over their head, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you have that piece of someone's life stabilized and then gives them the opportunity to do all these other things. That's why, you know, when I, and this is where I say, don't read the comments on any article around homeless ever because yeah. it'll just be, drive you crazy with how many people are like, get a job. And it's, it's when you think about what it means to ask somebody who currently is 
homeless as their full-time job because that is effectively what being homeless is is it becomes a full-time job of survival to then say by the way you should put on a nice interview suit and go get a job yeah is is pretty challenging and so that's what it is smart for us if we are going to give away our clothes should we be giving it to different agencies that can help as transition to give nice blazers and stuff that you would give away yeah i mean there's there's you know there's a few there's a couple nonprofits in orange county that do very specific employment services for the poor right okay. and so for people on welfare or on calworks welfare to work programs and things like that so that's whw and working wardrobes are very effective at that okay at actually helping people who are homeless right now you know, I, I have a really hard time with the idea that I'm just going to take folks who are homeless and work with them on getting a job. My Our job should be working with them on getting them placed in housing, and then mm-hmm. we can figure out the job piece. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is you have not ended someone's homelessness until you've handed them keys to a place. Okay, That's kind of you know what it ends up coming down to. There's great agencies that do that work, but that's mm-hmm. an ancillary service that has to come, in my mind, after getting them into a house. So to answer your question before... Demetrius, the housing first perspective was really pushed very aggressively by a woman named Tanya Toll in Los Angeles back in the 80s. And she really had the idea once transitional housing kind of became the model du jour, so to speak. And that was really about people returning from Vietnam is Mm -hmm. one of the places it's kind of linked to where people are transitioning back into society, so to speak, and using this kind of model for people that came back to nothing and needed something to push them along. She, and she's a brilliant woman who is an amazing advocate for this work, is still very active and um, has written books and everything else. And she was really one of the people who said, no, what you need to do is house people. You need to return them to normalcy, so to speak. That is what will start the process of doing everything else. So whatever model you do, whether you do rapid rehousing, whether you do... Um, whether you, like we do shelter, right? But our shelter is predicated on the idea that, okay, you can come in here to get off the street for a certain set period of time. But from day zero, we are talking about from minute zero, second zero, like you put your bags down. What is your, um, what is your exit strategy to get you into permanent housing? Cause that is ultimately what has to happen to end someone's homelessness. Yeah. And I, I can hear it now. People are like, I don't want my tax money going to just give somebody a house. I work hard for my money. But in reality, there's a study that shows the amount of money that you actually that ends up being used by the government to take care of uh, homeless people is actually more than what it would take to just give them a home to to get established in. Um, there's a study that shows a range of savings of about sixteen thousand to thirty thousand dollars per year. It's more. It's much more, actually. Wow. So, savings. yeah, so that, that same study I cited earlier, the Orange County United Way UCI report, it's basically double. So it costs about $100,000 to have someone live on the street. It costs $50,000 a year to house them. You mm-hmm. literally save that much money. So your tax money can either go towards $100,000 a year with potential death at the end of the equation, because we had 200 homeless people also die in Orange County in 2017 on the street. Wow. Yeah. Or you can pay $50,000 and get someone into housing. And homelessness is a community health issue. Yeah. Right? Like, I got kids. Yeah. Right? My kids go to the park. Right? If someone is having a mental health episode, if someone is shooting up in the bathroom, if those things are happening, I would rather them be contained and working on those problems in their own apartment and us moving forward with the person trying to, you know, help them be a whole human being again and, you know, be able to get past this. Right? Yeah. Like, or you can just pay more money in taxes for the public works, yep. for the law enforcement. And I'll tell you one that we don't think about that's a little bit more kind of complicated. But, you know, 
for what it's worth in this country without getting too political, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have a healthcare system that does not work for everybody. Okay. So you Correct. can look at that like a lot of different ways. And that's just a statement that's out there. And you can either agree with one side of the, how to fix it or the other. And yeah. okay. But that's a reality, right? So yeah. it, it's broken for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so when you, let's say you are a diabetic and you live on the street. Let's say you got shot in the head for a home invasion. You were a pretty successful guy with a college degree. But now the headaches you get are so bad you can't work. Um, and the only thing that solves them is a pretty extreme painkiller medicine. You lost your job. You're homeless now. This is a real anecdote, by the way. A real person that we know that lives on the riverbed or wow. lived in the riverbed. Wow. You can't afford the medicine because we have a healthcare system that won't supply it for you or won't give it to you or for whatever reason you don't have access to it. So where do you go to get it? ER. The ER. Yep. And every time you go to the ER, how much does that cost? Hmm. 3000 plus, I would imagine. And who pays for it? Everybody. You and I do it on our insurance premiums. Yep. So that drives up cost overall for everybody. So there's a really good conservative argument for like effectively ending homelessness for our communities. Yeah. Like a really good argument. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's the biggest sales pitch, right? It's if you're serious about these savings that you want to have in taxpayer dollars, yeah. then it actually takes an initial catalytic investment in solving the problem. Yeah. I, I actually recently spoke with uh, a fellow architect about, you know, homelessness and they were like, not under the impression that architects had any effect on on the issue and i take the side that the building industry and and especially architects do play a role in this this is a housing issue uh, and one of the major parts of the problem and i wanted to highlight a few projects that um, that are tackling this issue that i'm sure you're probably aware of some of these david the tiny home village which is a, a, a concept that we'll get into in more detail in the future on the show. Uh, but the tiny home village, have you seen them? David? Yeah, yeah, I have seen those. The homes range from as small as 50 square feet up to about 400 square feet. And the, the cost to build these are range from $2,200 to $28,500. And uh, these are usually volunteer labor to, to build them but they're popping up all over the country. Detroit, Michigan, Syracuse, New York, Nashville, Tennessee, Seattle, Washington, Los Angeles, California, Newfield, New York, Dallas, Texas, Austin, Texas, Olympia, Washington, and Portland, Oregon. And actually in Washington, one of the, they're, they're taking, not necessarily progressive, but they're getting more involved as far as, um, the city pay the city of Seattle pays about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars per year uh, to supply water, garbage service, and counseling on these sites. And then in Olympia, uh, they provide a shared kitchen, dining area, living room, showers, laundry, and offices and meeting space, as well as a, a vegetable garden. So they're they're really tackling this and providing that community that that you mentioned, uh, David. I've had some mixed feelings about the tiny house movement okay. as it pertains to homelessness. I, I, I'm, I'm interested in any innovative solution that, that takes on the problem that's cost effective and gets it done. Like those are, those are important things to me. The, one of the issues that I've had, there's two. Number one, I think you create a sense of identity that you are homeless if you create a community of tiny homes that, uh, for the homeless. So what I mean by that is 
it becomes much more evident who the homeless who the homeless are or the formerly homeless and something uh, like that. So it can it can it can like prolong stigma, stigmatizing, you yeah. know, stigmatization if that's a word. Yeah. Um of of the population. So if you say this is our tiny home community and it serves the ex, the formerly homeless and they're but they're gonna stay here for a long time, then they're I worry about that that sense around them, the okay. response from the rest of the community. Um you're saying something else? Sorry. No, sorry. I, that was what I wanted to ask. I want to give you. Know. I want to let you talk. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how to phrase that question, but I was wondering: a, if keeping them in that community while it's good for them to have their their sense of belonging, is there also some negative shared traits that happen if you're part of the community and keeping your eyes together, but just giving you homes? I didn't know how to ask that right, and that's yeah. kind of assuming that people that are homeless have these bad traits. But I just didn't know if there's. It's a super good question, and I mean, like. We know, oh my God, there's so much, there's so much to talk about this issue. <laughs> um, we know with, because um, what you're talking about that, that um, I forget what the, the sociological, term, I'm a professor, I should know this stuff. <laughs> it's not what I teach though, so I guess maybe not. <laughs> but um, there, we know that particularly with youth homelessness, when you have, when you pool a lot of youth homeless together, um, whatever activities they're doing that are p- potentially detrimental to like their growth and their development mm-hmm. get exacerbated in a major mm-hmm. way when they're pooled together, right? Sure. So it's, yeah. it gets compounded. So it's not just one level up. It's like add more people. Now it's eight levels up because mm-hmm. you're introducing new things people are doing to the equation. And I just I went to a workshop on this a couple of days ago, and I, I, I wish I could remember the term for it, but I, I can't. Um, but yeah, that is part of the issue. And, and, and the other issue too is that if you're trying to normalize somebody's life and put it back together, so to speak, reintegration into normal society, normalized society, so to speak, is really important, right? So if it doesn't look, taste, feel conventional, like what the other people are doing, mm-hmm. then you still kind of carry that with you. Mm-hmm. So I kind of have some hesitation on that. The other thing, to be quite frank, is I think about in the building industry, I think about density, right? So you can't do dense housing. That's tiny home housing. It's really hard to do. You can do micro apartments, yeah. but that tiny home thing, you, it feels like every model I've seen, the homes are individualized. Yeah. And it's like, it's like circle the wagons type of look. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's different than maybe there are better models for, it, but that's all the stuff I've seen. Yeah. I like the micro apartment thing more. Let's put it that Would way. Would you then, David, like the tiny homes as a transition? So step one, get them off of the streets. Step two, get them in there for three months. And then step three, say, okay, you've kind of helped them get on their feet that way. I mean, if you needed it, the truth is like, I want to create the fastest flow to permanent housing as possible, okay. right? And that's, and, you know, again, the, conser- the, the, the argument on all the economic sides and all the political sides, whether, you know, whatever you think. If you think that it's just the humane thing to do to end homelessness as quick as possible, get people off the street and into housing, then that's what you want to do. If you're interested in the economics and the money saving from a more sort of conservative, conservative standpoint, then mm-hmm. the money you save, the quicker you get someone off of the street and not homeless is tremendous. So you would want, I think as a community, as a group, mm-hmm. We all need to engage in whatever idea gets people from unhoused to housed as fast as possible because that's where you'll have the best outcomes. That's where you'll have the most cost savings. That's where you'll have the most efficient, quickest system that addresses the issue, if that makes sense. Yeah. And some of that comes from government policy uh, as, you know, making some of the most efficient solutions. One of the policies that came out um, here in California um, was a SB or Senate Bill 2. Mm-hmm. And then specifically in, in our area was uh, City of Orange's uh, Housing Element Policy Action 30, um, which kind of paved the way for uh, the Homemade Family Care Center. Did you want to talk a little bit about that one, David? Yeah, yeah. SB 2 is interesting because I think when we all, um, I don't know, it was probably five or six years ago, we were meeting, maybe less than that, we were meeting with um, city managers pretty often 
talking about, you know, okay, have we, as part of our, our con plans in each city, have we, you know, have you guys all identified your SB2 sites and what are they? And, and come talk to us about what it means to have a homeless shelter because once you've designated these sites, you know, you know, that's where you're saying we can have a homeless shelter. And when you, when you're referring to the, the site, the SB2 sites, uh, lay out a little bit what SB2 did exactly. Yeah. It, it made cities designate places with certain restrictions, like geographical restrictions, that could then be used as homeless, uh, potentially for homeless shelters, right? So it didn't give, it didn't tell cities you have to build a shelter here. Mm-hmm. What it did is, and I, I could be totally wrong, this feels like ancient history for me at this <laughs> yeah. point, but if I remember correctly, what it did is it acknowledges that cities need to, it acknowledges there's a homeless issue, right? There's yeah. a crisis, something has to be done. Uh, it acknowledges that cities have a role to play, and then it it asks cities to designate places where shelters could go. Right. So, yeah. and within that comes a bunch of restrictions. Can only be so many feet from a school. Has to be so close to a transportation corridor. Like there's all these different um, geographical, environmental things that have to be factored into it. Right. Yeah. So a lot of SP two, we have had sites identified that we have gotten even even though they're SP two sites, so they fall into the the, the profile. Right. Mm-hmm get tremendous pushback from people that live anywhere near it, right? The, so the NIMBYs. <laughs> not, the NIMBYs. Not in my backyard. Yeah, no, and now we have the YIMBYs, so it's been exciting. Mm-hmm. The, the yes, The yes, yes in my backyard. Oh, yeah, okay. we have a couple groups in Orange County. We got a few housing... That's a whole other issue. We got we have to talk about how the housing advocates, advocacy piece really dovetails with our work uh, in homeless services. But, uh, you know, there's in Fullerton on Tuesday night, they're having a hearing about SB2. And I'm, I'm really excited about it because they're they're deciding they're 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 deciding to augment their SB2 uh, zoning so that they can have some different parcels they hadn't considered before. But there's flyers going up uh, all over Fullerton show up at this meeting and fight back. Do you want 300 people homeless near your kid's school and all this kind of stuff? And of course it's funny. The flyer, it's not funny. It's the flyers have no contact information or anything. They're just basically a a, a pitchfork and a torch in paper form. Yeah, Yeah. totally. And it's, it's, you know, I I would love to have a conversation with people. I mean, I think that, um, you know, mercy house has done an amazing job managing the bridges site over in Anaheim, the, the, the homeless shelter that was approved a couple years ago. Um, they've done a magnificent job working with the neighbors in the community and stuff like that. And I mean, there's so much you can do to bridge those gaps. If you can just talk to people about it, what really happens when you have a service like this in your community. Um, but that's tough, but SB two, you know, hopefully cities embrace that, then take the proactive steps to secure sites, purchase land and parcels and redevelop and architects play a huge role in that Demetrius. So, yeah. So piggybacking off of that SB two paved the way for the family care center, yeah. um, which houses, uh, families, I believe it's more of a emergency need, right? Yeah. It's a shelter. Uh, it's a 45 day stay. Yeah. yeah. So there, there are organizations that are, um, sort of these, larger shelter format um, and I wanted to highlight one that's um, it's called Ava's Phoenix um, this is designed by LGA architectural partners um, and this is in Toronto downtown Toronto's fashion district uh, this one is a team teen homeless shelter uh, which focuses on the transitional housing and the role that architects can play in this and, and the, the greater building industry is uh, creating these spaces that both work within the framework of the program. Talked a little bit about the the program to help people kind of on their way to getting back to permanent housing um, and getting off of the, or getting away from the issues that that kind of plague them. So creating these environments uh, along with that programming at Ava's Phoenix, 
this is a 41,000 square foot building. Um, so it's like a large warehouse. And if you imagine inside of it, there are these 10 uh, homes or, or units. They, they kind of call them townhomes, but they're structured to have their own kitchen, their own uh, two bathrooms. Um, so you really feel like you have a house. And it, it looks like a mall to me when I look yeah, at the pictures it, of it. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of cool. It's like it's a, really cool. It's like a city inside of a warehouse, um, and then they have these skylights uh, all throughout. So it, it really makes a nice, bright interior. No need for artificial or less need for artificial light. Um, it's kind of structured as a city, like I said, with all ten homes flanking this sort of hallway, which they call the main street, and it's structured inside the homes as like a home format. Uh, because like you mentioned, you don't want people to have that uh, identity necessarily of being homeless. And it's a big part for uh, teens specifically that haven't had that development of being brought up in a house and helping them kind of mentally uh, recalibrate into uh, normal, uh, not normal, but um, into society and, and how to operate with within a group and, and living in a home do you see that as kind of a a better solution in comparison to the tiny home village? Well, yeah, I mean this. So I looked at that project and th- and the first thing I thought was, wow, they actually really thought about teens when they built this. Yeah, and and because they did a couple of things that were interesting. So number one is I think they have some braided services, so multiple services that teens could need aside from just the housing piece in it, right? Yeah. So um, so in this particular facility, they have a, a communal kitchen. A print shop, counseling rooms, lounges uh, that are kind of interspersed throughout the whole building um, and kind of encourage the, the activity amongst the group and that, that social interaction. And so, it looks beautiful. Let's, let's, yeah, I want to reiterate that yeah. because if you think about it, if you're a kid, right? And I mean, in, 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 in the U.S., I mean, I know this is in Toronto, in the U.S., this would be the ideal project for foster kids in particular because of how broken our foster system is, right? Yeah. Um, and foster kids that keep running away or emancipated foster youth. So we call that transitional age youth, people 18 to 24 who, you know, I, I used to do some work with foster youth uh, as an intern, as an undergrad. It's pretty heartbreaking to look at a 19 year old who has had 35, 40 foster placements since he was three years old, yeah. has no identity, doesn't really know who he is, let alone he or she. It was, it was a guy in this particular person I'm thinking of, it's, it was, a, it was a male who, you know the 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 work just to get him from to stop watching TV and just just focus on that and not think about the outside world because of how scary it was and how big uh-huh. it was and what was going to come next for him was daunting does not do it justice yeah. um, and so you have these 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 and they're still kids right especially men right we mature so so slowly anyways if you think about boys who have been through this process right um, and girls and everybody and, and have just had this separation from the normal sort of arc of development that we, and look, I came from a very poor family and my parents were divorced, you know, and, and so, and it's just, it's not even close, man. I mean, I at least stayed in the same school my whole high school life. You know, yeah. these kids went to 20 different high schools sometimes, yeah. um, or no high schools, you know, and were homeschooled, so to speak by a foster parent. And it's just like, just that, that arc or that that trajectory of development is so far behind that when you offer them something like this, that looks safe, it looks modern, yeah. it looks appealing, it looks like it looks not familiar but good, yeah. and and what they need, and you think of that as a platform to try to jumpstart the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, yes, that yeah. is, 
I don't know if you check the box for swearing on your podcast or not, but I try not to. Heck yeah. Let's put it that way. Like that to me looks really, really good. Yes. But I don't know like how successful they've been. I don't know those kinds of things, but just at first blush. Yeah. Like that's a good solution. But, and so this made me think about to what extent are teenage female women that are homeless getting sex ed slash access to contraceptive. So this is a, Allie, that's an awesome question. Yeah. Because that is your, in my mind, and I used to work in domestic violence. So for two years, I ran a domestic violence program. And it was a residential program. So we had all kinds of levels of, of, of residential care for, for domestic violence victims. The intersection of sexual assault, trafficking young girls, um, which is a very serious and very real thing, even here in beautiful Orange County, probably especially here, to be honest. Um and domestic violence and all of those things for young women is so massive and makes them so vulnerable, especially the ones who are in completely unstably housed situations from a very young age who are the most ripe for a lot of these issues to have to happen to. But I'd like to point out just to take a step further is the rise of older single women who are on the street, who live in a constant state of fear and a constant state of vulnerability around sexual assault and and violence from either people they're intimately involved with regularly Mm -hmm. or just the random one-off people that are like, you know, they're coming across in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. It's massive. I mean, it's just absolutely massive. And to me, that's your most vulnerable homeless population on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Miserable. Sorry, I didn't mean to get sidetracked on that. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a little passion for the issue. I don't know if you can tell, but you know. Yeah. Um, I can't think of a transition for that one. No, yeah, that's rough. That was I know. A rough one. Sorry. Um, Sorry. But I feel like it needs to be addressed. Yeah, no, it, it definitely does. I it's... mean, like, so I'll give you, so let's, like, I can take it back to this, right? Yeah. So one of the things that's becoming really popular locally, and I'm really glad because it's about time, is the idea of motel conversion, right? So you got all yeah. these, these kind of antiquated, old, questionably used by the hour sometimes <laughs> motels yeah. dotting specific parts of Orange County. Some of them are neighborhoods I grew up in. Like I know these places really well. And when I see them, I think that could be your next permanent supportive housing for people with a specific need or issue or just chronic homelessness in general. Yeah. Like that model we're talking about in Toronto. If you wanted to take uh, survivors of significant sexual trauma, abuse, uh, domestic violence, or trafficking, and build yeah. that kind of thing for them. Yeah, and watch them flourish. Mm. Oh yeah, like heck yeah. Yeah, like that's what I'm talking about. So thought of a transition. There you go. So uh, when you when you look at you know those kind of issues, the way that they consider uh, security in this uh, facility in Toronto, they eliminated closed and blind corners. Uh, built balconies that that have overlooks so you have that opportunity for uh, observation and mm-hmm. so so there is a lot of consideration in that in some of these designs as well as uh the architects for this particular project play close attention to uh circulation um so that the staff staff only resident only and publicly accessible spaces were situated in a way that naturally controls access so Architects can't play a role, so uh, hire an architect uh, if you're pursuing something like this, because we have a lot of study in in some of these techniques to to avoid or uh, prevent certain situations and create uh, more secure and safe space. Also, touching on where you were going with that that kind of motel conversion, uh, another um, project type is uh, kind of going towards the apartment sort of um, format which is similar structure to a motel, yeah. but uh, that, that apartment style and the way that they're approaching this to 
to cut down on costs and to expedite the construction is the term coined cargo texture. Oh yeah, I've seen this. Have you heard that, mm-hmm. Ali? Okay, yeah. so cargo texture uh, is the the freight cargo. Um, oh yeah, it, I just haven't heard it phrased like that. Yeah, yeah. So that was the, what threw me out when he emailed me about it. I'm like cargo text, but yeah. Oh yeah, I know yeah. what that is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, so reusing those uh, shipping containers. Shipping containers. That's yeah. what I hear it described as. Uh, the shipping containers, converting those into habitable space, and now they're reconfiguring them to to construct apartments. So this is happening. Actually, surprisingly, Orange County is kind of leading the way. Yeah, American yeah. Family Housing. Yeah, yeah. one of the, uh, it's one of the, you know, more conservative areas, but they are being very progressive in addressing this issue. So one of the, the first, it was Potter's Lane. Uh, so this is mid-city, mid-city Santa Ana. Uh, Potter's Lane was a, a America, like you mentioned, American Family Housing um, that kind of led the way on this. They created a 15 uh, unit, uh, 480 square foot units that were earmarked for homeless veterans. Have you, did you hear about that or see that one? You know what? I, you know, it's weird. I have not been down there yet. So they just, um, they changed their, uh, CEO recently to an, a, a new gentleman who I've been working with closely and we're supposed to do a tour of it. So I know the project. American right? family housing. Yeah. American family housing. He's a, he's a great guy and, and we've been working together on some stuff, but I haven't been down there, um, to see that yet. I know a little bit about it though. Okay. Um, and I like innovation. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. These shipping containers are are basically used because in, in some respect, there's a surplus of them. Although in doing some research, I found that there's actually not as much of a surplus as people think there is because a lot of the manufacturers have kind of throttled back on making these. So uh, it may not be a long-term solution, but it's an interesting one. Um, so the the Potter's Lane kind of inspired um, some of the stuff that's going on in LA now. And one of the projects is uh, the Hope of Alvarado. And this is by uh, my old stumping grounds, KTGY. They're doing mostly, uh, or it consists of studio and one bedroom apartments that are 400 to 480 square feet. And this particular unit is, or or apartment is in the West Lake area of LA. And it's really close to uh, public transportation, so residents without cars can uh, get to their jobs and elsewhere, uh, have, you know, areas to park bikes and dedicated parking for social uh, social workers. That would dovetail really well with SB 827 if it gets past the state legislature. Do you know about that? No, what's 827? So SB 827 um, mandates cities, so it kind of takes control away from cities in this case, Yeah, and mandates cities to build denser housing near transportation corridors oh, for commuters. Okay, I'm not yeah, familiar sorry. with the actual designation, but yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm no, I know the... It's I like architecture. Yeah, I'm I know excited the, about yeah, this. I know the actual <laughs> work. Yeah, so the the cool things about this whole concept of cargo texture is that it's cost-effective because you basically have a prefabricated structure. We, we did a whole episode mm-hmm. on off-site construction. Oh, nice. So, so while the site's being prepped and the foundation's poured... Uh, these uh, units are being prefabricated off-site and then just ready to be craned into place. Um, and one of the companies that, that's working on this is called Growth Point, and they modify these shipping containers. And one of their clients actually um, suggested that they can cut the construction time that we usually take to do an apartment from two or three years down to six months. Wow. 
Yeah, so they can uh, they can actually you know crank these out pretty fast. And Growth Point uh, said that they their units are 106 times stronger than the building code requires for uh, facilities and and can resist weathering for a hundred yeah. years. Yeah, I mean the only thing I've heard that's at all negative. I guess slightly about these things is they're difficult to heat and cool. Yeah. So insulation's yeah. a huge part about yeah. uh, this solution because uh, they're metal, metal yeah. structures. So they get really cold in the winter and really hot in the summer. So insulation is kind of a, a complex part of it, but um, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, some of the other things to consider when you do this is toxicity. They're coated with a, a special weatherproof paint. If you do pursue something along these lines, you have to be uh, mindful to hire someone that's very well versed in this specific uh, project type. These can contain uh, hazardous to health ingredients, including the interior, because it has a special treatment that repels bugs and different things like that. There is questions about durability because these do rust, uh, so you have to be mindful to to frequently check them for rust and any kind of issues like that. The other major issue is uh, construction permits because not a lot of cities are um, on board quite yet with these prefabricated metal units, um, especially shipping containers. I didn't catch if you were on board or <laughs> how did you, you go know, I, that? I'm excited people are exploring this as an opportunity for sure. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think the jury's out a little bit on, on its overall effectiveness long term on how well it's going to do. Yeah. I want it to do well. I hope, I hope that, um, like those, those different things you were discussing that are challenges. I hope those are able to be dealt with and they find creative solutions for them. Um, environmental hazard stuff when you try to house people is really scary to me. Yeah. Um, I live in a 106 year old house. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, when we were getting lead paint, lead test paints for our kids, uh, when they were young, you know, it's like, so how old's your house? Uh, we're going to send a nurse over to look at your house. Yeah. Like, Whoa, wait a second. Um, so things like that kind of scare me a little bit, but at the same time, like I, I applaud everyone who's taken a step to try to, figure this out like this is good to try you yeah know, for sure yeah Ali did you have any other questions for David I think we're gonna try and wrap this episode up so I'm just curious if you have heard about virtual reality as it relates to homelessness so the reason this came up is I know that Amnesty International and the International Rescue Fund are so they're yeah they're working sorry international rescue committee they are realizing that people have, have become numb to syria and to the gaza strip and people will give money but at a certain point you're just kind of a rich person that's giving money and you're so disconnected from it you're just kind of doing it for your social circles hmm. and so what they did in new york is they had this big gala where of course whole bunch of rich people are going there and they said, hey, we also want to take you off to this room. And so they took them into a room where they brought them to a Lebanese refugee camp and said, wow. can you sit here, use VR and kind of immerse yourself so that you can understand how critical this is. Wow. Um, there was then a scientist that said, well, this applies to homelessness. It doesn't need to be death, you know, by terrorists and all that. It doesn't need to just be that high level. It could be the fact that people are facing homelessness every day. So they had people also put on the goggles and actually almost play a, a video game of sort where 
you got you lost your job. Okay, now try to sell everything in your house. You can't do that. Okay, you got evicted. Okay, now you have to live on the bus. When you live on the bus, you can't sleep though because if you sleep, people will steal your stuff and trying to make people feel more sympathy like to the it. The Oregon Trail of exactly. homelessness. <laughs> of homelessness. Yeah. yeah, and it sounds to me the research that I had seen is that it actually had been fairly effective, but I don't know if that's something I saw the um, the Lebanese uh, refugee camp one. Okay. Uh, I saw a lot of chatter about that on Twitter. Okay. And I saw a lot of very mixed reactions from mm. advocates. So um, I, I was interested in it. I, I think, look, <clears throat> my job as an executive director, right? So we've talked a lot about program, right, mm. in this in this you know podcast, like sort of stuff that we would do to address homelessness. So that's mm-hmm. the programming side. Yeah. But the reality is we don't get there without a lot of really good conversation about what homelessness is, which we've done today too. But yeah. my job a lot of the time is to tell the story of what homelessness is and what the solutions are and how people can help and support like Pathways of Hope's work mm-hmm. and the community at large's work, right? So if you're going to invest in us, great. But if not, let me help you invest in someone that's right for you. Yeah. I'm a big believer in, in keeping your money in your community. Mm-hmm. Um, even before I started doing this work, I am not a huge fan of giving to causes that I don't know, like you were talking mm-hmm. about, like the money just disappears that mm-hmm. it flies off and builds a, a water well somewhere mm-hmm. and I don't have any connection to it but yeah. my friend Eric lives in the orange circle and I see him almost every day and every day I see him you know looking rougher depending on the weather and I, I see him struggling more and more and I think to myself this is someone I, whose name I know who lives right here yeah. that's my VR experience right yeah. and so what I would say is and I can't take Eric into my house yeah. Like, and that's not my role to play in this. Yeah. My role is to contribute to a system that allows for that because we all have a role to play. Architects have a role to play. Yeah. You know, you were asking about it earlier, I think kind of being statuous, but it's, it's true. <laughs> like you, you do have a huge role, like a good architect can make or break a project. We yeah. know that for yeah. shelters. Um, and I think that, um, you know, whether it's VR or whether it's, it's true R, right? Like yeah. a real reality, like yeah. what matters is stimulating conversation around this issue yeah. and what it, the ad experience is like. So if people need to have it broken down like that to them mm-hmm. for motivation, great. Like yeah. whatever it takes. Yeah. Like me, like I don't need to, I don't need, uh, you guys can tell, I don't need, I don't need any more motivation. <laughs> like I'm good. Yeah. Like I'm good. Right. But everyone's got their own level and place where you have to meet them. Mm-hmm. Right, so just like you, we talked about the person earlier, you have to meet the homeless person, people experiencing homelessness where they are. Yeah, to have the conversation, to stimulate the the courage to step forward and help with the issue, and and the, to motivate people to do something about it, you got to meet them where they're at. So maybe that's a tool that works for them, yeah. and if it is, rad, like cool. do that. But yeah. you know, for me, it's just like just breathing, just really, you know, just yeah. being alive, having a pulse, getting up in the morning, just yeah. kind of gets me going. You know, yeah. Yeah. everyone's in a different place, and yeah. you got to go where they're at to get them to get going on this. Yeah, yeah. that's a great point. Um, did you want to finish off with any other last comments, or leave it at that one? Well, yeah, it's hard to top that one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, just again, I think I think that is the the, the thing though is that. Um, I think it's about talking and having the conversation with the people in the community around the issue and what the real results are of having so many people living unsheltered and what um, the real results are of doing something about it, I think is really important. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, help us out. Yeah. Get involved. Great. So I'll, I'll have uh, all of David's information on our website as well. And I'll try and get a, a nice photo out of him uh, to post <laughs> as well. <laughs> Uh, so check out our website if you want to get some more information about uh, David and his efforts and Pathways of Hope. Um, we'll also have links to the articles and, and projects that, that we talked about today. So at this point in the show, we'll go ahead and uh, do some listener mail. Listener mail. 
And uh, for our listener mail, uh, today we got a post on Instagram. This is from CC41. He said, listen to your podcast on SoundCloud while I do, let's see, while I do custodial work. Enjoy listening, hearing your different perspectives and insights. Liked hearing your views on tiny houses, found it very comical and insightful. Mm-hmm. Maybe can expand more on that and my situation later. Later, Still in shock, two of you didn't know who Le Corbusier was. And then he has like a hands to face, <sighs> like uh, Home Alone, yeah. <laughs> Home Alone face. Uh, had to listen twice just to clarify that it wasn't sarcasm. And then he has the hand slap, oh, no. hand slap to forehead uh, emoji. Uh, and that's going back to our Smart City episode, I think. Mm. So uh, you can check that out if uh, you want to see what CC41 is talking about. Uh, thank you again for that, that uh, post on Instagram. Appreciate all comments. And if you want to comment, there's tons of ways to do it. You can send us an email if you uh, have a a lengthier comment you want to make. Hello at spacespodcast.com. You can like and follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash spacespodcast. On Twitter at spacespodcast. Instagram, spacespodcast. And LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash company slash spaces dash podcast. And we know there's tons of podcast options out there. We appreciate you spending some time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and like it and share it with a friend. Your support's the only way that this grows. And if you just stumbled upon the show, please subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And don't forget to check out spacespodcast.com. Under the Listen tab, you'll see all those photos and notes that covering the stuff that we talked about today. And with all that said, if you're catching up, hit next or if you're listening as we put these out we'll see you in a couple weeks thanks Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. 
And hold on tight for Season 2 where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as Chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.